thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So the reason why, they'll bring up the fact that in chapter 16, when Moses begins to speak about the, the feasts, and like I said, these feasts are, he focuses on because they are connected to the temple, they bring about the point that the reason why Moses is doing that is because later editors were trying to focus on the centralized, centralized worship. In Jerusalem. In other words, they view it as means to reassert the authority of the king. They have a political slant. They have a political slant on that action. They view it with political, uh, with a political filter. Now, oftentimes we Catholics can suffer from the same defect. Our lenses tend to be politicized. I remember when I started, um, when I started uh, th- these studies, I had some folks from the Middle East come to me after and chiding me because I'm supporting Israel. So if I were, I'm praising uh, Jacob and, and Abraham and Isaac, they hear me and they think I am supporting the state of Israel today. Uh, many of us tend to do that today in regards to... Um, the current situation in the United States. We tend to be very polarized politically. We take keywords and we immediately attribute political intent to people who say certain things certain ways. We have to be careful with that. We have to be careful with that. Um, the reason why we need to be careful is because if we start to pigeonhole people in boxes, then we are limiting the reach of the gospel. We're limiting the reach of the gospel. In other words, if we're going to preach only to people who like us and we like them, we are not being imitators of Christ. Christ spoke to Nicodemus who came to him at night. Nicodemus seems like a good man, but his name in, in Greek is Nikaodemos, denier of democracy or crusher of democracy. That's the Greek name he's carrying, which leads us to believe it necessarily his real name, but nevertheless, that's, his na- that's what it means. This is not somebody who is people-friendly, but Jesus takes the time to preach to him. The rich man who comes to him. We cannot be sandboxed. Why am I mentioning this? Because, I'll give you another example that happened to me when I was up in Canada. I met a girl who was... Uh, 
Amish or Mennonite, Mennonite, which is the Canadian version of the Amish. Actually, they're, they're connected. The Mennonite and the Amish are connected. I don't know what they're called differently. Be it as it may, she was studying, the, she was in religious studies. I asked her, what are you studying? And she told me, St. Teresa of Avila. She didn't say saint, she said Teresa of Avila. So I was overjoyed. This is one of my favorite uh, saints and one of my favorite authors, Teresa of Avila. I said, wow, that's wonderful. Uh, but you're Mennonite, why are you studying her? And her answer is, she read the autobiography of St. Teresa by herself, and she, she understood the humility with which St. Teresa was writing as a device that the saint used so that her voice as a woman may be heard in a male-dominated society. She turned St. Teresa of Avila into a trickster. Needless to say, I did not react with the charity I was supposed to react with. So we have these tendencies to do that. Moses, on the other hand, is not a politician. If he was a politician, he would not have angered the Israelites time and time again. He's not a politician. Moses is a lover of God. And what he has in mind, first and foremost, is God. And just as in Israel, just as in the desert, God established the tabernacle, the tent, as the only place of meeting where people could come to Him and offer sacrifice. So in Israel, He will continue to do the same. Why? Why Why is it that when they move into Israel, which is going to be a nation, they're going to be spread out all over the place. They're going to be far from that one temple, not like the desert. Why is it that God continues to insist on them coming down to only one place and worshiping there. Why? It's a family. Yes, a good point. And this is the point they, they miss. Turning to their root. Okay. The ark is there. Yes. Right. He told them. But why did he tell them? I mean, it's not practical now, is it? Right. If you're living down south or up north, it's a track to go to Jerusalem. Why can't I just do it where I am? Let's be practical. Yes. Yeah, obedience, we're getting closer. Yes? Yes, absolutely, prefigures the church. But, but yes, I know, I man, watch us. We are not in Rome today, are we? On Sunday, we don't, you know, hop on a plane, fly to Rome, celebrate Mass, and come back. We don't. Just, just think about this. From a practical standpoint, God is not being practical. You notice that? It's not practical. He commands them, you will go down to Jerusalem for these three pilgrimages. No, there's no choice there. Right? It corresponds to what in our case? Not confession, no. Holy days of obligation. Notice, God is not practical. God does not conform to our sense of practicality. Why not? Three words. Practicality is sinful. What we call practical, practice, are the things that fit or meet our need. Practicality is all about self-centeredness. Right? If we were less practical people, there would be more saints amongst us. Because saints aren't practical either. And none came to St. Saint, Saint, she is Saint? She is blessed. Blessed Teresa of Calcutta. And she told her, because in her order, Mother Teresa told all her nuns, you begin your day, and their day were very busy, very busy days. 
You begin your day with one hour adoration. One hour adoration in the morning. That's how you start your day. Not the contemplative side, the, the, the nuns who are serving the poor. You start one hour. This nun came and said, Mother, I, I'm, I'm, I have so much to do today, I can't spend an hour in adoration. So Mother Teresa told her, Well, then, my daughter, you will spend two hours in adoration. And you will ask the Lord to give you the time to do what you have to do. You see? Yeah, God is not practical because he knows what practicality does to us. Faith is not practical. Faith is supposed to bug you. It's supposed to bug me. And sometimes it, it borders on the absurd. I mean, look at us tonight. Why do you have a guy with a PhD in computer science doing a Bible study? How's that making sense? I don't know. You see? Faith is thinking outside the box all the time. That's how God is. He's not practical. But there's another reason, you see, behind this business of practicality. When I say to someone, oh, well, I can't come and see you right now because I'm busy. What am I really saying? Ah, that's it. Now we're putting the finger on it. You're not important enough for me to make that step. Right? And I've given you this example many, many times. And I keep on giving you because it's, it speaks to us. Like I told you before, if I were to tell you that in a church 60 miles away from here, tomorrow morning at 5 o'clock, there's going to be a pile of $20 million at the foot of the altar. First come, first serve. Will anybody say it's not practical? Do you notice? That's why. At the fundamental level, God is saying, I took you out of Egypt. You were slaves. I brought you here. I'm going to give you your own land. I did all of that out of love for Abraham, for Jacob, for Joseph, for Isaac. And I'm doing it all out of love for you. And you're telling me it's not practical. So anytime the thought of practicality comes to your mind when God knocks at your door, and he's always going to knock at your door at the moment that you find most inopportune, he's going to come and bug you. Anytime the thought of practicality gets in your head, look at the cross and tell Jesus it's not practical. That's all. Just tell him who's hanging on the cross, it's not practical. Love impels us to do what is right. That's what's in the heart of Moses. That's what he's teaching the Jews. And so he tells them about those three feasts, one after the other. So, the main theme of the three festivals is commemoration of the Exodus and gratitude for the harvest. Gratitude for the harvest. You commemorate the Exodus to remind yourself of what God has done for you. Oftentimes, we at birthdays give each other, well, give the person who, whom birthday we're celebrating a card. And on that card, we write something nice, usually. And the next year, we do the same thing again and again. Why do we do that? Why do we repeat why do we repeat? Remember the story of that man who his wife is dying and he's kneeling next to her and asks her, Honey, in all 40 years of marriage, is there anything you regret, anything you wanted me to do that I've never done? She looked at him and she said, Only once. You never told me you loved me. And he had a very pained face on, on expression. He said, But honey, I told you I loved you the day I married you. And if I had changed, I would have said so. In, in, in a logical sense, in a practical sense, he's right. He said it, 
and his word was one, and he meant it. It's practical. Why repeat the obvious? But we know why we repeat the obvious, don't we? Because we need it. Yeah, we need those repetitions. We need those Hail Marys. Yeah? We need them. And so Moses begins by, you will remember the Exodus, so you can remember what God did for you, and then you will be grateful for the harvest. Even before the harvest has begun and before it finished, you will be grateful. So what is this all about? It's a, it's a school of love. It's also a school of preparation for the coming of Christ. So when Christ comes, they may recognize Him as the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of Exodus. It's a schooling in love and in preparation for the coming of Christ. And so it is for us. We do those things which are not practical because you know what? Death is not practical. And we're all going to go through it. Can't turn death into a pra- you can't say I'm not going to die right now. It's not practical. Not going to happen whether you like it or not. It's going to happen whether you like it or not. And when, at a moment that is not opportune, most of us find death surprising when it knocks at our door. So if we prepare ourselves by doing those impractical things, which are acts of love, acts of charity, by being available, by trusting in God. Then when death comes knocking at our door, it'd be like the bridegroom coming into our soul. That's why he reminds them of these things. And that's why they have to go down and to Jerusalem and celebrate it. So, according to some Jewish, Jewish exegetes, what happened was that when they celebrated the Passover, which is the first festival, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is about seven weeks before the start of the harvest... And remember, if you are an agrarian society, you depend on rain in the Holy Land. There are no big rivers like the Nile. You depend on rain. Therefore, you depend on God. God's providence has to provide the rain that you need in order to, have to see the gar- harvest grow. Therefore, to the, Jewish, the, the Jews lived this whole uh, cycle of festivals as if it was, number one, a penitential rite. This is according to Jewish exegetes. Jewish exegetes, in preparation for that, for that harvest to come. So they lived it penitentially, preparing for the harvest, so that we do the same thing with when Lent is around, in preparation for the harvest, which is Easter. Now, the second, the second pilgrimage was the Feast of Weeks, which celebrates the grain harvest. And that is, as I said, seven weeks after Passover. And here is what, for instance, one Jewish commentator said. His name is David Abu Dram. Abu Dram. He is from the 14th century. He was commenting on the Jewish liturgy, and he said this. Some explain the counting of days and weeks on the ground that the world is anxious between Passover and weeks about the crops and the fruit trees. Therefore, God commanded us to count these days to keep the anxiety of the world in mind and to turn to Him in wholehearted repentance, to plead with Him to have mercy upon us, upon mankind, 
and on the land so that the crops should turn out well, for they are our life. Notice the universal vision that he had. It wasn't just the anxiety of the Jews, especially with the land. Everything is intermingled. It was the anxiety of the whole world waiting for the crop. We have it a little harder. We're disconnected from the land. No longer do we have a real conscience, unless you're a farmer, obviously. Most of us are not. For most of us, the mental representation of the farm is the supermarket, right? Most of us have not worked on a farm. Most of us don't even understand how that works anymore today. So we're disconnected and we take it for granted. So therefore, how do we develop a sense of gratitude and a sense of dependence on God? How do we do that? Well, very badly. Very badly. We're busy. We're very busy. We don't have time to think about that. So God comes to our rescue and gives us those things that bug us. Health problems, or he take a loved one from us, or he... he laden us with some burden to carry. And all of us are carrying burdens. All of us. No exception. I don't think there's anybody in this room that is not carrying a burden of some sort or form. But these burdens are gifts from God because without them, we can't develop a sense of gratitude, dependency on God, thank Him for what He's doing for us, and reach salvation. We can't. We can't. So that's why we have these things facing us. And what he's expecting from us now is to understand and realize that he who gives us the burden is also the one who carries 90% of it. We're never alone carrying that burden. Never. He who gives us the burden is carrying 90% of it. Like somebody said, uh, God today, God today, for each one of us, God today did a thousand things for us today. And we're probably aware of three of them. So he gives us those things so we can increase our awareness. We can increase our sense of dependency on him. And realize he is the source of life. We're not. So Moses was a man who fully understood this. You watch his life. You see him carrying this burden of all of Israel for 40 years. People who misunderstood him were afraid of him. He had to veil his face when his face shone because they were afraid of him. A man who knew God like no other man did and who had that heavy burden to carry. How did he do that for all these years? He did it because he knew he was with God. And his focus is on the liturgy first. Okay. Interestingly enough, since the second temple, the Feast of Weeks served to commemorate the giving of the law, the giving of the Torah, which began with the revelation of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And obviously, we also recognize in the Feast of Pentecost the birth of the church. Notice the change in language. We go from language that speaks of text to language that speaks of life. Because in, uh, in, in the entire Old Testament, 
is a symbol pointing to the reality which is now. The entire Old Testament is like a sign saying San Diego, and now we live in San Diego. That's the difference between the two. Everything that happened in the Old Testament was already pointing to the New Testament was going to happen there for real. And that's what we have. So we, all of us, cannot do any less than what the Jews did in during Exodus. Because Jesus himself said that the queen of Sheba will rise at the end of the world and judge this generation. Because she came and was awed by, by Solomon and there is something greater than Solomon right here. Yeah? Notice. She will judge the generation that saw Jesus walk on this earth because they did not believe in him. Well, think about it. Think about Moses. Think about Caleb. Think about those Jews who believed, who lived in tents, who were warm, who did not have everything they needed, who depended on the harvest, who depended on God to be protected from enemies, who were completely vulnerable to the elements. And they believed, despite the, all the sufferings they had. What do you think they would say about us during our during the final judgment? Could God be unjust? Could God be unjust towards them and reward us if we fail to have a faith at least equal to theirs? Would that be justice? So, so next time, you and I want to open our mouth to grumble about something? Turn that into a smile. Just smile. Do like St. Teresa little child Jesus did. Smile. And Keep a tight control on our tongue. All right. Now, the third feast is the Feast of Booths, which is really the celebration of the end of the harvest. And that became, in our liturgy, the Feast of Pentecost. And it is at that feast, which is the ingathering, yes, the Feast of Tabernacle became Pentecost. Yeah, I have to think about that. All right. Uh, it became the ingathering, and it was marked by a large number of sacrifices. So when we want to celebrate something, we should always include God in our celebration. We should always include God in our celebration. Whatever we're celebrating, God should be present in our celebration. God first. That's the kind of sacrifice we should make. So therefore, one tradition we have in the Maronite Church, which I love, and I don't know if it's only in the Maronite Church, the Chaldeans may be doing also the same thing, it may be all Eastern churches, but one tradition that we have, which we try to keep in my household, is that on Christmas, which Christmas is coming, you know what in the Mar- you know what Maronite households do the day after Christmas? They go to the church and bring flowers to Our Lady because she had a baby. So it's free. We don't have a copyright on it. You can adopt it. Go see Our Lady and say thank you. God first. And bring her roses. All right. Now, 
After he speaks of these festivals, he turns around and starts talking about the civil and religious authorities. Remember last week when we said that the structure of Deuteronomy would seem to us a little bit haphazard? So here he start, here's a perfect example in chapter 16. He was talking about festivals, and suddenly, with no proper transition, he begins talking about the duties of people and civil authorities. It seems completely misplaced. It seems like somebody put those texts together. But actually, it isn't. Why? Because it's in line of his thinking. First, he talked about what is highest. God. And the duty we owe God. Then now, he's coming down. He's going to talk about the king, about the prophets, about the priest, and about the military. So the hierarchy is what's driving him in this conversation. So this begins in verse 18 of chapter 16 and runs through chapter 18, verse 22. And he is going to introduce four main types of human authorities, judges, kings, priests, and prophets. Judges, kings, priests, and prophets. Two on the lay side, two on the ecclesial side. Judges, kings, priests, and prophets. Notice that today, we as Christian have three of those roles. What are they? No, it's not judge, priest, and prophet. It's actually priest, prophet, and king. And specifically, the role that is left out is judge. That role is to Christ alone. We are not to judge. Because... Jesus told us, the way you will judge, that's how you will be judged. You see, when Nathan came to David and gave him this parable about the rich king, the rich man who had 99 lambs, meaning lots of them, not exactly 99, lots and lots, and the poor man over there who had only one. And the rich man wanted to have a celebration. So what did he do? He went to the poor man, took the one lamb he had, and made a feast out of it. And he asked David, what do you think should happen to this rich man? David became incensed. He should be put to death. Nathan then told him, Eche Omo, you are that man. And some of the more beautiful commentaries in the psychological side I read on that subject, on that passage, point out that David saw, saw the evil of the rich man through the prism of his own sin. In other words, we are experts at judging in others what is in us. And that's why Jesus reminds us, before you actually go and judge your... Talk about the splinter that is in your brother's eye. Take the oak tree that is in yours. I'm, I'm slightly exaggerating, but not by much. But let me tell you something about this story, which we always forget. We think that, oh, well, it's a simple procedure, right? Step one, don't look at the splinter in the, your brother's eye. Just take the thing that is in your eye. All right. Uh, those among us here who have ever done that, please raise your hand. Those among us here who took something out of your own eye, raise your hand. I want to see that. So there's a deeper irony to what our Lord is saying. He's not 
essentially telling us to go do something we can actually do. The proper reaction from the story is, but wait, no way, I'm not going to be able to even do that. I'll probably be screaming, or I may have passed out if there's something in my eye, right? I'm not going to have the sense to take anything out of my eye. And if somebody gets close to me to take it, I'll probably punch him or something. Right? Jesus' word seemed nonsensical until we realize what he means. We cannot even do that. We cannot take that thing out of our own eye. We don't see it. It hurts us. And we are not doctors, most of us. And even if it's a doctor, the doctor would not operate on his own eye. You understand? Yeah. We need someone else to do that for us. Because we don't see those sins. That's why confession is such a wonderful gift from God. If I go to a priest and I start mumbling, the church needs you to confess your sins in kind and in numbers. You don't tell the, 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 the priest a soap story. You don't know all the details. Just in kind and in number, you have to be very specific. Not because the priest needs to hear any of that. They don't. But because the, you need to be able to get the devil to stop influencing you. And that's the way you do it. By being very specific. I committed a sin in gluttony. Okay? That's easier to say than if I said, yesterday I ate three lasagnas and I three pounds of ice cream and I didn't leave anything to my brother. That's harder to say. At the very least, your conscience of what's in your eye. And then the priest, by the authority of Jesus Christ, can remove So, Judges, we are not to do so. But kings, priests, and prophets is a gift that God gave us. And we need to exercise this. Now, here is something very interesting and revolutionary the time of Moses. And then something that sort of has been appropriated by the, um, in the United States as something that the founding fathers invented. But really, they did not. The founding fathers of the United States did not invent the separation of power. It's in the Deuteronomy. There is separation of power between the king and the judges and the prophet and the priest. No one figure of authority can hold all powers. Not one of them can be judge, king, priest, and prophet except the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Deuteronomy is structured along the line of limitation It doesn't explicitly state what they can do. It explicitly states what they may not do. The other important element is by making this teaching public, it empowers all Israelites to be critical of abuse. Because they know what is right. So it raises the moral consciousness of the entire nation to a level that was unknown amongst any other nations around them. In, Greek, in Greece, the elite would have known about that. Not In Rome, the same thing. Only in the Israelite constitution, Deuteronomy, would you find the people being completely made aware of the limitations of the powers of all these positions. Something that is not sufficiently understood. 
So as I said, this limitation lays the ground for public supervision and criticism of human authorities and prevents them from gaining absolute authority and prestige. And who amongst the people you think were critical? Who do we find among the people who were very critical of power? The prophets. The prophets. Many of them ended up dead. But that was the calling. They exercised this power to admonish kings, officials, and priests, as well as the people for moral and religious sins. So, let's talk a little bit about worship first. As usual, we begin with worship when it comes to prohibition. You shall not, in Deuteronomy 17, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. The poor animal is not an abomination. That's not Moses' intent. He's not saying the animal is an abomination. He's saying the act of sacrifice of an animal with a blemish is an abomination. It's an abomination because you are belittling God. You're You're not offering God the best. And God deserves the best. That's why. So, this is for everyone, but why is it set in the context of roles, judicial roles? Why is Moses talking about what you should not offer God in that context? Because he's setting the tone. He's basically saying, if you are not going to offer an animal with blemish as a sacrifice, you will be able to resist bribes you will not offer bribes. You see, here's one truth about America that we Catholics don't want to hear. The moral, the moral state of a nation reflect, is a reflection of the moral state of Catholics. When those Catholics are comfortable in that culture. Put differently, You want to turn the society around. You want to change things. You want an end to pornography. You want an end to abortion. You want an end to contraception. You really want an end to divorce. You want to change society around. Do you all want to do that? Yes? Okay, well then start by stop talking in the church after Mass. Because until and unless you stop doing that, none of that is going to happen. You cannot... You cannot disrespect God in his own house and expect him to go fix all these problems simply because they annoy us. Do you understand? We will not stop abortion. We will not stop contraception. We will not fix any of these problems until we start worshiping in truth and in spirit and we give God his due. Once we become real worshipers, so that when we step into this church, you you can hear a pin falling on this carpet. Then, and only then, will you start seeing real changes in society. Not before. Because God will not be disrespected. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Okay. That is why Moses emphasizes the liturgy so much. Because without proper worship due to God, nothing right will happen. Nothing. We're getting anxious about what's going on in the world when we should actually be anxious about the way we worship. 
about not asking the priest to shorten the mass because we have something else to do. About not cutting corners in the way we worship, in the way we dress, in the way we behave in, in, during mass. Because it all begins here. The water of life flows from the altar. We're the one clogging it. It's simple as that. It's as simple as that. It goes from God the Father to God the Son to the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit to Our Lady. At this point, the entire path is fully open. And there is enough graces in that ocean of water to cover the earth 14,000 times and take care of all our issues. Then it flows down from Our Lady to the church, to the Holy Pontiff, then to the bishops, then to the priest, to the altar, and then to us. And that's why it gets clogged. Because, number one, we have issues of believing the power of the liturgy. We come here like a bunch of mendicants with a whole list of things instead of coming here as glorious sons and daughters of God to worship Him and thank Him. And number two, we ourselves don't go to confession. We don't open the channels of grace in our lives. And we cannot therefore communicate it to the world. So the world is starving. Is that surprising? This is it. I just summarized the scriptures for you. This is what all scripture is all about. This. That's the good news. That's the good news. There is no problem out there that cannot be solved. None. <laughs> We're the ones blocking it. This was Moses' problem. This was the prophet's problem. Why did they go after the kingdom of Israel after Israel split into the kingdom of, Ju of uh, Judah down south and the kingdom of Israel up north? Was it because they had their own kingdom? No. Was it because they had their own king? No. It was only for one thing and one thing only. They decided they're not going to go down to Jerusalem and worship down there. They made their own temple. So God sent them waves of prophets. The first wave told them, stop or else. The second wave came and said, prepare. And then the Assyrians came down and shipped them all in, in, in exile. God will not be mocked. That's the power of the liturgy. That's the truth that Jesus established. He rules the world through this altar. We're the ones getting in his way. Because we have more important things to do out there. And I think this is what Pope Francis, by the way, meant by that whole comment that got so many people riled up. He wasn't saying... We shouldn't fight against contraception or against abortion. His point is, we've become a bunch of activists. We've taken everything in our own hands, and we think we're going to solve the problem. When in fact, we're, lose, we're leaving the most important thing out of our equation. Worshipping God. That's what we as Catholics should do first. True worship of God. And then let Him take care of the rest. Because He will. And that's essentially what happens in the book of Deuteronomy. That's what Moses is establishing for them. Make sure that when you worship, you offer the right thing. Be true worshipers. That's what he's telling them. And then, and then, he goes on to tell them about the prohibition for all of these roles. So, for instance, he starts with the court in verses 8 to 13, chapter 17. When the local judge cannot reach a decision, if he's just, he must seek a ruling from the high court in the chosen place. Now, the high court is not like a supreme court. Right? The high court is essentially plays a consultative role. He goes to them with a difficult problem and asks, okay, how am I supposed to rule on this case? That's what he's supposed to do. And the, 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 the Jewish um, commentators and rabbis saw into this the prefiguration of the Sanhedrin, the role that the Sanhedrin would play as being the 
authoritative, authoritative um, body to rule on these issues. Ask you this question. How many of us here read the encyclicals put out by the Holy Fathers? One, two, three, four. Good. It's higher than the usual percentage. I'd say among Catholics in general, it's probably less than 1%. But we want God to solve all these problems for us. We're not going to listen to what the Holy Fathers are saying, but we want Him to solve all these problems for us. You know this? They're not, usually they're not very long. No, those of John Paul II, I mean, some of them are tricky. I agree. But the, the, the encyclicals of Pope Benedict are beautiful, easy to read, and Pope Francis, likewise. Not difficult. And you can read them paragraph by paragraph. You don't have to read the whole thing. But no, we're going to read the newspapers and follow up everything in politics and sports. Yes, baseball and football and all forms of uh, torture that we have out there. That's my own perception on sports, so I'll stop there. But this is what we do. We have time for all these things, but to read an encyclical? No, 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 no. We leave that to the priest. And notice, most of the time when there's a problem, why don't the bishop speak? Why don't the bishop do this and that? What are the priests? What about me? What am I doing? Yeah? Remember, in the order of the church, the religious matters are left to the clergy. So the consecration of the Eucharist, the consecration of the lady, is the duty of the, of the clergy. The duty of the lady is to consecrate the world. No, no, no. We want the priest to do that because it bugs us, right? I don't like what's going on out there. I'm anxious. Why is the bishop not saying anything? All right. So the, the, the judge is supposed to be, he's supposed to be wise, He's supposed to have witnesses, two witnesses, whose witness corroborates. Can't have one. In a Jewish court, the accused has no voice. He cannot accuse himself. He cannot admit his guilt. Nor can he plead innocence. He has no voice. The voice is given to the witnesses. Only the witnesses. And that is why when you read the, the, the Gospel of St. John, you realize that the Sanhedrin violated every single rule that Moses put in place. You're not supposed to condemn a man to death by night. You're supposed to have two witnesses who, whose, whose uh, um, um, uh, witness uh, agrees, and the accused has no voice. What did the high priest do at the end? I adjure you by the living God. He put Jesus under oath. Are you the Son of God? Jesus said, thou hast said it, which means, yes, I am. And he said, that's enough. What do we have for anything else? And he completely short-circuited the entire process established by Moses. And by the way, if two witnesses agree that a man had committed a crime, which is punishable by death, guess who performs? Guess who actually is the um, executioner? The two witnesses. Yes. The two witnesses. So does God allow injustice? Yes, he does. Here, but it's only part of the story. Right? In many cases, in many cases, our pleasure is nothing more than pain deferred. Right? A pleasure that we have acquired through injustice is nothing more than pain deferred. Right? Not talking about a lawful pleasure or a pleasure that comes through grace or a pleasure that God's will. I'm talking pleasure that we steal 
That's nothing more than pain deferred. We're going to pay for it. So when we think about why does a God allow this? And why, how come there's such evil in the world? You have a truncated view. We have a truncated view. It's only sort of the first two minutes, not even, the first couple seconds of a life of somebody whose, whose life is eternal. Eternity is something we cannot conceive. Our brain just does not compute. We don't understand eternity. I love the way Mother Angelica described it. She said, suppose you have a ball of iron the size of this planet. And suppose from time to time there's a bird that comes and sharpens its beak on the surface of this ball. Think about how long it would take before this ball dissolves because a bird is sharpening its beak on it. That time, all of that time, is just an instant in eternity. We, we can't, it, 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 our brain goes, right? What do you mean eternity? We can't even think beyond a billion. We, we can't, it just doesn't compute. But we judge based on what's going on right now. In these couple of minutes, so to speak, of the entire life of somebody. So when you see an injustice committed, when you see somebody committing evil, pray for their soul. Because if you saw hell, your entire anger would dissolve instantly. If you saw hell, your entire anger would dissolve instantly. So, we have to see things the way God sees them, not the way we see them. All right, now for the king, verse 14 through 20. In case of a king, there are three limitations that Moses imposed on a king. And they are, number one, he cannot hoard silver and gold to excess. So that means a king is not allowed to impose heavy taxes. What do you think is the view of taxes in Scripture? How is taxes characterized in Scripture? Anybody has any idea how Scripture describes taxes? Okay. Taxes are a curse from God. That's what taxes are. Yes, when God wants to punish the people, He taxes them. Why? Very simple. Because when we get in a system that heavily taxes people, the entire structure of society is undermined. We no longer depend on God, we depend on the state. And when we start depending on the state, our religious fervor goes down. And hence, the state becomes an agent by which people move away from God. It is a curse. Due to what? Yeah, but what kind of sin? Rebellion. Rebellion. Specifically, rebellion. When we decide, essentially, to worship whichever way we want, God sent taxes. You see, we Catholics have such a disconnected understanding of our faith these days. We think God is up here, somewhere on the mountain, very, very high. And he becomes real one hour on Sunday when we go to Mass. But God has nothing to do with the IRS. What can God do? Poor God. After all, there's one of him, there's so many of us. What can he do? That's not the way Moses saw it. That's not how the prophets saw it. That's not how the early Christian, the father, saw it. God is omnipotent. Everything that happens 
happens under his will. Nothing escapes his will. Nothing, including the IRS. So, taxes. He's not supposed to tax the people excessively. That's number one. Limit that. Number two, he's not supposed to have many wives. Well, in our conscience today, when we think of many wives, there's only one thing we can think about. Well, mostly men think about that. One thing. But that's not at all what was in Moses' mind. That's not the most important element. Why would a king have many wives? What's the purpose of wives back then? Not kids, no. Political alliances. Back then, political alliances were inked with women. Right? They were the token to cement alliances. You marry my daughter, you're not going to come fight against me because my daughter will tell you what you're not supposed to do. And if you do something to my daughter, I'm going to come and take care of that. And then my niece and my extended family. So I'm going to make sure, position all these girls, right? So I can keep you under my control or vice versa. So if if I have many wives from many kingdoms, I have a relationship with all these kingdoms. Therefore, I've increased my political clout. That was the purpose of... Because notice, he didn't only say a king will not have many affairs, many concubines, wives. Moses did not prohibit polygamy. Moses did not tell them you'll marry only one woman. So marrying many wives was not against the law. He limits the king and only the king to have fewer wives. Why? Because of these political alliances. What's the intent here? If I start to think about political alliances, who am I going to forget? Bingo. You understand? The second restriction. The third, chariots and horses. Representing what? Military might. Military might. You will limit your chariot and horses so that you do not trust in yourself and your own strength. All of which will lead the nation astray. So the three limits. Money, political connections, power, and military power were imposed. Well, guess what Solomon did? He multiplied the wives, he taxed the people, and he had lots and lots of chariots. And by the way, if you're wondering about the number 666 in the book of Revelation, guess where that number appears for the first time in the scriptures. It appears the first time when Solomon taxed the people and he received 666, essentially, bushel of gold. So the echo that you see in the book of Revelation goes from, obviously, Nero who was a type of Antichrist, back to Solomon, who was also a type of Antichrist in his later days. All right. So that's about the king. Then Moses speaks about, in chapter 18, he begins to talk about the clergy. His point is that the clergy are to be supported. The clergy are to be supported. Moses does not say, you support the clergy if you see wings sprouting on their backs. 
He doesn't say, you support the clergy if they come from your clan, or your tribe, or your family, or if you like them. He doesn't even say, you support the clergy if they're sacrificing the right way. You support the clergy, period. Why? Yeah, obedience, absolutely. But also, a show of love of God. If you truly believe that God is in control and that nothing escapes him and that nothing can escape him, then even a corrupt priest is a priest who is here because of his will. So you support him. Now support him, let's be very clear. It does not mean you're submissive. It does not mean you accept everything he does if what he's doing is contrary to the teachings of the church. No. Support means, first and foremost, love. You do everything for him out of love. Because God is watching. Because God is watching. Then, in verses 9 to 22, Moses turns to the prophets. And he clearly indicates that the authority of the prophets is that of the only legitimate channel of communication with God. You want to talk to God? Talk to a prophet. No other one. No other one. No other channel exists in Israel to talk to God. Why is Moses insisting on that? Because he knows the temptation. What is the great temptation that Israel faced, which we face today? In going into the Holy Land, what is the great temptation they're going to face? Yeah, but what exactly, in, in connection to, to the prophets? Look, all of us are anxious. We want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, and a day after, and a day after. What if we know someone who can actually tell us? Right? That's not actually true. It's not true that nobody can. Sorcerers, diviners, they can. Some of them can. Well, how can they? Well, you see, the angelic mind, by angelic I mean the species, I don't mean good angel versus bad, all angels, hmm? have what is called an intuitive intellect. If you show an angel, first of all, angel only means messenger. So we know very little about these beings. And in fact, if, if any one of us tomorrow were to face an alien coming from a different planet with 12 pairs of eyes and 14 ears, He's actually a lot closer to us than an angel is. Angels are probably the most alien form of life we can ever meet. They're spirits. They don't have a body. Each one of them is his own species. They don't um, sort of, uh, they, they, they can't bring, an angel cannot bring forth another angel. And the way they communicate is completely alien to us. So if you show an angel, any angel, the laws of geometry, the axioms, the Pythagorean geometry, the instant the angel sees these laws, in that instant, he's derived every single truth that could be derived out of these laws. There is no cogitation that goes on in the mind of an angel. You understand? He doesn't have to sit down and think about it. So, if you say one truth to an angel, when the angel hears it, he's derived out of it every possible truth that could be derived. 
with that knowledge. Okay, now therefore it doesn't take a demon too much computation time to project out what is going to happen with the highest possible likelihood. Yeah? The good angels are in certitude and truth. The bad angels are in probability. So they don't have that much of a difficulty projecting out. And therefore, they will say things that will come true. Not all of them, but many of them. So there are ways. What's the problem with that approach? We go back to practicality. It is practical for me to know what my tomorrow is like. Because then I can do, prepare, do things, right? Notice the thinking now. As soon as I start thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow, if I knew what's going to happen tomorrow, I can start making decisions. Right? And I have the best intent. I'm going to make the best possible decisions. But what if those decisions actually impacted all of you? You'd want some input, right? But I can't even share this with you because you may not even believe me. So why bother? I'm just going to make decisions. So what is it all about then? Control. Control. Yeah? And he who wants control does not want love. You have to make a choice. Either you love and therefore you're, you are exposed and you can be hurt or you want control. In which case you become your own little god. And we know where that, where that ends. You understand? This is why diviners and sources aren't good. So practically speaking for all of us here, no reading the horoscope, right? No reading the horoscope. Or no reading in leaves or in coffee or in mugs or any of that stuff. Not being superstitious is part of it. Can't be afraid of a cat walking under a ladder or some other nonsense like that. Because we're made in the image of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine Jesus being afraid of a cat walking under a ladder? Aren't we supposed to be imitators of Christ? Jesus himself did not choose Peter, did he? As a, in his life on earth, as God and man, Jesus willed to humble himself and be led by the Holy Spirit. So he waited for his father to tell him. And then he chose Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus willed that. So should we. So God sends us people we can go to. In our case, we don't have prophets, but we have better than prophets. We know, for instance, that if we go to confession and we confess our sins and a priest pronounce the words of absolution, then we know with absolute infallible certainty that our sins are forgiven and forgotten. The Jews had no access to this. So, you can see that in all the ways in which Moses is talking, as he prepares them to enter the Holy Land, to take ownership of it, so, one more thing he talks about, I'm not going to be able to cover it because we're already over the hour, very briefly, as cities of asylum. So, the interesting thing about Deuteronomy, again, which revolutionizes the whole notion of asylum, is this. Innocent people who murder someone innocently 
can go to a city of asylum. But someone who murdered someone with premeditation cannot. In other civilizations around them, either you couldn't at all, or anyone can claim asylum. So, for instance, somebody can murder someone with premeditation and then run to an altar and say, I claim asylum, nobody can touch him. But not in the case of Deuteronomy. Only those who did it out of an accident that were not intentionally trying to kill someone. Back then, the laws of uh, the, the blood uh, vengeance was required. This was cultural. And hence, if someone killed someone of my family, I'd be on the duty to go and then exact justice by killing him. But if he can reach that city of asylum before I can reach him, then I no longer allow to touch him. He's, his life is safe, provided he stays in that city until the death of the high priest. And only then is he allowed to leave safely. Right? That is a revolution in terms of justice because back then it was completely indiscriminate. didn't matter whether you're innocent or guilty. Right? And so God introduces this law through Moses, which is not perfect, but that's how much the people could actually take. Had he said, you will wait till someone goes through a you know, judicial system before you decide whether you're going to kill him or not, the law would not have been obeyed at all. They were not able to absorb it. So Deuteronomy is not perfect. It is set to meet the Jews where they are. And oftentimes, God also walked with us on our imperfect journey, knowing it is imperfect, knowing it's not the best, because that's how much we can take. All right. So... In summary, you can see that the entire, pre- I mean, Moses is preoccupied with two things. He's preoccupied with God. He wants to make sure that the Israelites will give God his due worship. And then he's preoccupied with holiness. He wants them to live a life that is pleasing to God. And he structures his laws carefully to help them reach these goals. He's not setting the bar so high that no one can reach it. Nor is he setting it so low that depravity can set in. It's a carefully balanced law. And in fact, most of us, many of us do that with our own children. We see in our children certain behaviors that we would wish were not there, but we set the bar appropriately. I'll give you one example. I have a deep-seated conviction that gaming, playing games on a computer is not a good thing. It's not, it's not a good thing. Is it sinful? No, it's not. Provided the game is not sinful, right? Talking games are not sinful. I still believe it's not a good thing. Now, does it increase your focus and attention and accuracy? No, probably it does. I mean, that's great. But in my mind, it undermines the sense of prayer. I haven't done any studies, but I'd be willing to bet that a gamer is unable to sit 45 minutes and pray. In other words, games prevent gamers from attaining the contemplation. It turns them into activists. So I have a deep issue with this, because I know there is a much greater good that I would like to be able to give our children. But if I set that bar this high, I'm not, I'm not doing anyone any good. So I have to compose with the reality that I'm given, and be patient. And then, where do I focus all my energy? So we set certain rules which we think are reasonable, and then where do we put all our energy then? Here. Because that which I cannot do, 
is not impossible to God. So we, like Moses, are faced with those realities. With us as well. So many of us are so hard on ourselves. There is no forgiveness in our hearts for our own faults. Some, some of us carry regrets. They can't let go. And accept themselves as they are. You know, there's a song who, uh, in some, <laughs> what is it, like uh, uh, Laura, the, uh, the uh, explorer, or Nora, the explorer, I can't even, yeah, that, her. Somebody, a genius, came up with that song. I'm the map, 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 I'm the map. Sometimes I feel we should stand in front of the mirror and say, I'm a sinner, 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 I'm a sinner. Got that, God? Yeah, he strike me with lightning. I'm still standing. I'm still being able to go to Mass. Okay. I'll leave it up to you to turn me into a saint because I cannot do it. We need that kind of levity and joy in our heart to be able to walk this walk. Toward ourselves first and towards others. Right? And I'm, I, I, I am willing, well, if I were a betting man, which I'm not, I would have bet that Moses was, had a great sense of humor. It doesn't come clear in the book here, but in his own life, he must have had a great sense of humor. All right? So let's finish with a word of prayer, and then we can take some questions. Please stand. All right. Questions. Yeah, the question is, how does that flow of grace works? Right? And where do we get that teaching from? Now, I'm not coming up with that stuff, right? St. Thomas Aquinas teaches that the, well, obviously God's grace is infinite. We all know that, right? However, God's grace has to reach us in finite ways because we're finite beings, all of us, each one of us. No one can take on infinite grace. We're not God. Infinite grace equals God because grace is nothing more than God, right? Okay, so how is that happening? Well, Jesus established channels of grace, the sacraments. That's what they are, channels of grace that he can send our way. Practically speaking, how did he do it? He said, I'm going to establish a church. Okay, he did that. Now, here's what St. Thomas says. The efficiency of God's grace depends on four things. The holiness of the reigning pontiff. Well, you can go check on that. It's incredible. It's extraordinary since the 1800s. We've had a string of not just good popes, saints. This is amazing. So check on that. Second, the holiness of the ordinary of the diocese. Third, the holiness of the priest. Fourth, the holiness of the lady. Need I say more? Now, in in the story of the Syrophoenician woman, she came to see Jesus, and he told her, it is not lawful to give the food of the children to the dogs. What Jesus meant was not to insult this woman, as most, some commentators think, oh, well, Jesus was the product of his time. You know. Okay, I don't want to be there when you stand in front of him and tell him you were the product of your time. No. Jesus is making a clean deline- clear delineation between the children who are part of the family, and dogs who are, unlike what most California people want to hear today, especially women, they're not kids, and they're not part of the family. Dogs are outside. Do you understand? That's what he meant. She was not 
part of the family. Now, here is the most extraordinary response you get in Scripture coming from this woman to show you the power of the Holy Spirit who works anywhere he wishes. Because in that instant, this woman understood the nature of the church. What does she say? Yes, Lord. Notice. How could you call me a dog? How? No. Yes, Lord. Echo of Mary. Yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table of the children. What did she mean by that? It's actually, it's actually ironic because it is a very beautiful criticism of the apostles. Because if you read a little bit before that, this woman is wailing. Meaning, she's speaking with a loud voice. And many of you know that Middle Eastern women, especially Lebanese, when they want, can speak with a very loud voice. So she's walking after them, and she's not letting go her case. What do the apostles say to Jesus? Ah, she's bothering us. Tell her to go away. Huh? No food. Nothing is falling from them, is there? They didn't get it. That's why Jesus let her do all this. They're not getting it. They're supposed to feed her. Even think about that. So she says, even the children, even the dogs, eat from the crumbs that fall from the table of the children. So even unconsciously, without even making any will to feed any dog, you're still feeding the dogs, right? What is Jesus' answer? It's amazing. O woman, how great is your faith. Faith in what? In him? No, in the church. She understood the entire structure of the church. Jesus feeds the children. The children feed the world. That means, in order for the children to feed the world, they must be what? Well fed, right? Not dying of hunger. Because if you're dying of hunger, you're not going to feed anybody, are you? Well, in order to be well fed, what does that mean? You have to be in what? In a state of grace, right? Otherwise, you're not fed. You're starving. Well, how can you be in a state of grace if, A, you don't go to confession? People tell me, well, I go to confession twice a year. So I ask them, how often do you shower? I shower once a year. Well, why don't you shower once a year? You let your soul go dirty for six months. You stink spiritually, but you have no problem with that. Do you understand? But we want all these problems out there solved. That's what's going on. It only, no, no, in general, it only works through us. That's how Christ structured it. Now, the Holy Spirit and God can work outside the sacraments that Jesus established. They're not bound by them. But the normal channel of graces that Christ died to establish are these. And, well... I don't need to describe to you how the liturgy is usually. The way we dress, the way we sit. Oftentimes I point out to people, if you're in, the, in Mass, please don't cross your legs. Now obviously if you have a back issue, if you have pain, that's the only position you can take. It's a different story. I'm not talking about that. Just talking generally speaking. Don't cross your legs. Why? If I go to visit you and I'm crossing my legs, it means what? 
I'm taking a comfortable position. It means what? I sense I have the right to take a comfortable position. It means what? We're on equal footing. Yeah? But if I come to see you and my life depends on, you, on your decision, what kind of position do you think I'm going to be in? Sitting, you know, my arm on the back of the chair, crossing my legs and smoking a cigar. Right? I'm going to be on my knees, right? We're coming to see God Almighty and we cross our legs. It's like, no big deal. Jesus, watch what Jesus is, right? I sometimes wonder why does he just do this miracle and then somehow let the nail come down and he cross one leg over the other just to show us what we do. The kind of disrespect we show him constantly. And we're good Catholics. Yes. And you see, this question of the tabernacle is a really important one, don't get me wrong, but in many cathedrals in ancient times, the tabernacle would be set aside in a special chapel. It was not in the main church. In many cathedrals, big churches, this is what the church wanted. So it isn't just a question of the tabernacle. But you're right, it is in many cases, because the intention with which you take the tabernacle out is what really matters. The problem is, we, the laity, also have lost a sense of holiness. We've lost that sense of transcendence. We've lost that sense of God is awesome. And until we recover that, until our hearts change, until we really are in tune with who God is and who we are, neither falling into the excesses of Jansenism and thinking, oh man, God is going to just destroy me right now because I just ate a chewing gum, swallowed it, right? Nor falling in the excesses of our modern time. Oh, God is merciful. He loves me just the way I am. Jesus and I are buddies. We have to have the right reverence for God and the love of God. But not one without the other. And we've lost that as a community. Yes. So as far as the Tudentine Mass is concerned, the, um, the Vatican II had no intention of moving so quickly from one form to the other. Things went out of hand and they were done completely outside the authority of the church. And we are where we are today. Nevertheless, I am a lover of, the, of that Mass. I do love going to the Tridentine Mass, personally. I love it, in the Latin rite. But I can tell you, honestly, reform was necessary. Having only the priest say the Our Father is problematic. Having only the priest say the Creed is problematic. Having no participation of the lady other than in silence is problematic. But... It was a mass that produced saints, so I'm not going to be criticizing it. I'm just explaining why there was a need to reform. Now, the language itself is no barrier. Whether Latin or no Latin, it's not as much of a, a problem. Like we see it in the Maronite liturgy. In the Maronite church, we used to say it only in Aramaic. Then, in order to essentially adapt to the Arab world, we translated the mass into Arabic, and it's beautiful. And now here in the United States, we translate it into English, and it's beautiful. So that's not the issue. The issue is the predisposition of the people. So it's true that in Latin, right, you are more predisposed for, um, to be truly um, reverent, right? Whereas here, um, whereas in the, in the modern mass, we're more in terms of, well, we're coming in for some show almost in many cases. Now, I'm not saying this, and I want to be very clear. I'm not saying this to judge anyone. I'm not here to judge people, all right? All that I'm saying is that if we are thinking and if we're praying about changes in our world, we should focus less on what the president is doing and focus more on what we're doing here in the liturgy because that's where the real change is. Think of it this way. The liturgy is the engine of the world. The liturgy torques the world. The liturgy directs the world. The liturgy is where all the power is. 
That's why throughout the ages, Catholics were persecuted because without even understanding why, others would sense the real power. It's here. And that's the power that transforms your lives and mine. Yes. Absolutely. He wants all his children to, to, to come to him. He absolutely wants that. He desires this. He died for it. God is outraged. I'm saying bothered. I'm using a very gentle word. He's outraged. We hear the word of Our Lady at Fatima. Do not offend our Lord, the Lord God anymore. He is much too offended. And then she added, God will punish the world with a second world war. So God is offended. But Jesus established his church. And Jesus is faithful to his church. He will never say, oh, well, Catholic Church, you know what I'm supposed to do? I'm just going to let go of you. We're having a divorce. Not going to happen. It's through this church that the world will be fixed. It will be fixed one way or the other. So one way or another. It will be. Some are more painful than others. And a lot, of it, a lot of it depends on how we worship. This is so counterintuitive because it's not practical. Right? It's not productive. It's not measurable. It's not successful. It's none of these criteria that we run companies with and they're needed out there. It is holy. And holiness is what saves the world, nothing else. Yes, it's true. God is working, but he works through us. How do you reach the sinner out there? You're not going to have an angel appearing to him. There's going to be some Catholic that this person is going to meet. right? And then how is that grace transferred? Well, it's transferred from one to another. Through what? Through means of holiness. Received through whom? The, the Eucharist. Nothing is done apart from the Mass and the Eucharist. You understand? That's how it works. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Free will takes a huge part. Totally. I'll give you a really practical example. You know that the Catholic vote moves this country. If all Catholics voted according to the mind of the church, do you think we would be where we are today? No. How many Catholics vote for Obama? For Kerry. Even though it's a moral sin to do so. Voting for a president who supports directly abortion is voting for abortion. It's a moral sin. How many Catholics know that? Uh, yeah, I'm not judging anyone. I'm just saying. You see what is the problem? If we had purified our intention and if we lived ca the Catholic faith as Catholics, we would not be where we are right now. So even practically, we have the proof of the, in the pudding. Yes? Very good question. So how ha what happens, for instance, in the Orthodox churches, which, which separated themselves from the Catholic church, but still have valid sacraments. You have partial flow of grace. You have whatever grace they can receive aside by being separated from the Holy Pontiff because they're still receiving the Eucharist. Right? Now, I cannot tell you in measurable ways what that means and how it works. That's beyond me. But God is not going to refrain from giving them graces. For, the, for, for what purpose, though? Unity. Unity. For the purpose of unity. That's why those graces are coming, so that they can be reunited again to the Catholic Church. Why? Because the Catholic Church prays unceasingly for unity. So if, the, if his bride is praying for unity, God will provide the graces required for people to come back to her. Make sense? I have yes. Uh, oh, yes. Fasting is part of the whole deal, right? Fasting is a wonderful weapon against sin. 
fasting is a great weapon against our tendency to, um, to vice. So I do recommend for anybody who can do it, when you go to Mass in the morning on Sunday, don't drink, don't eat until you receive the Eucharist. Try that. It used to be that way, absolutely. It used to be that way. Just don't drink, don't eat. You're going to Mass. Offer that up. Small thing changes the world. Yes, extraordinary ministers of communion. Not the Eucharist. Extraordinary ministers of communion. Uh, That is something that was requested by the Catholic Conference of Bishops in the United States and in Canada. Right? It's not in all countries. You will not necessarily find that in all countries. It's here and in Canada and maybe not some other countries as well. But that's a, a pastoral decision that they took. Uh, it is, uh, these are uh, essentially, they act as the extension of the hands of the priest. And they are only supposed to be there just so to be able to give communion. They're not called ministers of the Eucharist. They're just extraordinary ministers of communion. All right? Yes. So, do usually an indulgence in those years follow exactly the same pattern. You either go on pilgrimage to a holy site. If you cannot, you go to a cathedral. And then you have to go to confession. You have to, uh, you have to go to confession. I don't think you have to attend Mass. You have to go to confession. You have to pray for the intentions. Pardon? Okay. So, yes. Confession. Communion. You have to say a prayer for the intention of the Holy Father. And you have to fulfill any other obligation they may ask you to fulfill for that specific um, indulgence. But that's the general structure of an indulgence. That sounds, and obviously, when you go to confession, you want to ask for uh, true contrition, which is a grace that God gives us. We can't manufacture true contrition, which means complete sorrow for our sins because they offended Jesus. That cannot, we, our heart is too hard. Our heart, our heart is too hard, tongue twister, for us to be able to do that. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit to give us this wonderful grace. Because if you do that, then the upshot is that you receive a complete remission, not of sins, complete remission of all temporal punishment due to sin. Yeah? Yeah. Well, uh, confession usually is plus or minus uh, eight days. Yes. All right? Yes, last question. Okay, so generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, when it comes to news, we must be informed. We need to know what's going on. Now, watch yourselves. Do not read the news out of curiosity. Curiosity is a vice. It's not a virtue. If you see a title that says, uh, Child was born with four heads. Why are you clicking on it? (laughs) What's the impact of that piece of news on your life? What can you do with this to be more charitable towards others? How can you give glory to God by knowing that piece of information? If you don't, what are you doing there? Your time is precious. So you must exercise real tight control over curiosity. Because curiosity leads to gossip. Did you hear? Be careful. So then again, make sure you're really anchored in prayer, in good readings, you're reading Life of a Saint, you're reading teachings of Saint, read St. Augustine, he's wonderful. Pick up a book that will nourish you so that when you, fee, fear, when you face the toxic waste coming out of the news, you're well equipped to react to them with tranquility and not with anxiety. All right? God bless you.
We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.